listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are in a Sunday morning series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And in his letter, Paul addresses no less than 10 major issues in the church. When we think of the the Corinthian church, holy is not the first adjective that comes to mind. Uh, We've already learned that some of the Corinthians were sinfully divisive, particularly over their teachers, their leaders. Uh, They were in some cases tolerating even uh, incest. They were suing each other in order to gain social status, uh, taking these uh, menial, trivial things into the civil court system and and abusing that. Uh, In some cases, they were excusing sex with prostitutes, which we looked at last week. And as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians, we'll learn some of the Corinthians were claiming that it is not good uh, to pursue sex with one's spouse. Uh, proudly claiming special knowledge, claiming and clinging to their rights in a way that uh, does not uh, benefit uh, and build up and edify fellow believers. In some cases, they were abusing fellow believers, even when celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, We're going to learn that they were misevaluating and misusing spiritual gifts and denying even the bodily resurrection of believers. So this is a church that had issues, a lot of issues. Um, Like the Corinthian believers, we must mature uh, like a child grows into adulthood. We already looked at that in chapter 3, and uh, and, and, and as as seed sprouts and grows into a a mature plant, uh, those are the pictures that the Apostle Paul uses. God's holy people must become uh, what we already are in Christ. Now, we would say that positionally, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are already fully free, fully forgiven, Uh, from the penalty of sin. But very practically, we are still living in a very messed up, broken world. And so that means practically we have to live out who we are positionally in Jesus Christ. And that's the the message that Paul continues to drive home here. You need to live out your identity in Jesus Christ in a practical, uh, practical way. And so we've established that the Corinthian church must mature in two main areas, in purity and in unity. The church must mature in purity to counteract worldly values and must mature in unity to solve conflicts within the church. And so the problems that Paul addresses here in 1 Corinthians stem from these Corinthians embracing Roman society's impure values and embracing those values has resulted then in disunity in the church. And so correcting the compromise is the way to correct the conflict. Correcting the compromise is the way to correct the conflict. Now, if you've already glanced down at the first five verses of chapter 7 here, uh, you know that we are still on a very sensitive subject this morning. Uh, And while I recognize that uh, the subject is sensitive in many ways and for various reasons, I also recognize that we are all in various places in life. Uh, Some of you are mature adults, senior saints, uh, seasoned saints, whatever fits, whatever you, you like. 
Uh, others of us are in a different place of life. And, and so when you can look at this subject, you may think, well, this doesn't, I mean, I can check out of this message. I, I wish it was that simple. Uh, I really do. Uh, I, I wish that some of you could just kind of take a break today, take a siesta through the rest of the message because this doesn't apply to you. But in some way, in some respect, this applies to all of us because we all live in the midst of a very broken world. And we, we see that brokenness in a profound way in this particular area of human sexuality. I believe that we need to work through the text in a thoughtful way. Uh, if you're new to us, if this is your first Sunday, this is not a subject that we talk about every week, okay? Uh, this is not a subject that I particularly enjoy uh, teaching on or preaching on, and so if you're feeling a little uncomfortable this morning, a little, uh, get a little nervous in your seat there, trust me, I understand. I'm the guy preparing these messages every week, okay? And, and so, uh, you know, sometimes you want to kind of, you know, tell some homespun, fun story. You can't tell a whole lot of funny stories on this subject, Okay. You can't tell a whole lot of serious stories on this subject, all right? So um, I, my goal is obviously not to be an entertainer, but I do want to be faithful to the text. And I make no apologies, none, for preaching the whole counsel of God. Uh, we want to be a church that is text-driven. And that's not to say that you'll never hear a topical sermon preached at First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. Sometimes I preach what many would consider a topical sermon uh, but by and large, the steady diet that we want to deliver up, that we want to serve here at First Baptist Church, is uh, a type of preaching that is text-driven. Okay, So the text drives the subject before us. Uh, we're not an attractional model church, Okay, not, not trying to find things that everybody will like and everybody will leave every week and go, oh, I just feel so good about myself now. I, d I do want you to be encouraged, Okay, not, not have no intention of browbeating you every week or making you leave here feeling like a heel or anything like that. But this is, without a doubt, a sensitive subject. And I believe we need to work through the text today because we, uh, your children, the people sitting next to you, are being bombarded every day from television screens and the internet and social media and from friends and peers with a very, very different view of human sexuality. Now, if you don't believe me, then you're not paying attention or you're living in a bunker somewhere, Okay. And we badly need to hear, in our particular cultural moment, clear teaching on this subject from the Word of God. We need to have someone saying in our ear, as it were, behind us, this is the way, walk in it. We badly need to hear a clear voice giving us wholesome direction from the Word of God. So if you look at verse number five, uh, just kind of by way of introduction, you'll see that the Apostle Paul realizes that at Corinth, this whole area of human sexuality was a major battleground uh, and one of the favorite targets that Satan was using to wreak havoc in their lives. Uh, and let me be crystal clear. It is also a major battlefield in the spiritual war in which we find ourselves today as well. We need the Word of God to speak to this subject. And after having spent part of chapter 5 and the second half of chapter 6 dealing with sexual immorality in different ways, a sex that's distorted and perverted by sin, Paul turns now in chapter 7 to give us a positive picture. He's given us the negative picture with some important correctives. Now he offers a positive picture, and I love that approach. Uh, what we see here is sexuality in the beauty of God's design. It, it was God's idea. 
God's idea. And I mentioned last week at the close of the service, if you were here, that for everything that God designs and creates to be beautiful and, 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 and a picture even of the gospel, Satan comes along and always has some kind of a counterfeit, some kind of a cheap, fake substitute. Uh, and so what we find here are really two extremes. I remember last time, last week at the end of chapter 6, Paul addressed the problem of some of the members of the Corinthian church whose view of, of intimacy was so liberal, so unrestrained, that they were actually visiting the temple prostitutes who plied their trade as part of the pagan culture of Corinth, at the temple of Aphrodite. And so there was a, a, a fraction a faction of the church at Corinth who lived by the slogan, all things are lawful for me. That is what they were saying. Anything goes. They were saying, you know, the body really isn't all that important. What's most important is the spirit, what's within. And so you, with the body, do whatever you want. And Paul unpacked for us there in chapter 6 a theology of the body. Okay, very, very important. Again, what we do with our eyes, what we do with our ears, what we say with our mouths, all very, very important. But then there was another group that's addressed here in chapter 7 who seemed to be in reaction to them, kind of overreacting, we would say. They also had a slogan, and you see it in verse number 1 in our text. It's in quotes. They had swung all the way to the opposite extreme, and so their slogan is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's not a very catchy slogan, is it? I can't imagine that it was all that popular, but nevertheless, it summed up their teaching. And so you see the two extremes. On the one side, there's an unguarded sexual promiscuity, and on the other, there was a kind of prudish hostility toward sex altogether. They saw it as dirty and unworthy of a Christian and always to be avoided. And I recognize this morning as we introduce this message, maybe some of you grew up in a home like that in some respects. The subject was completely taboo, never to be talked about. You grew up with this kind of attitude that this is, this is, this is not something that Christians should be discussing ever. That's a very dangerous position to take. And I, I'm not dumb to the fact that there are some kids in the room today. We're not going to be graphic. We're not going to be inappropriate. But this may foster some conversations in your home. And I hope and pray that your attitude is not, well, they'll learn it somehow, some way. That is a very, very dangerous position to take, especially in today's world. Especially in today's world. And so let's look at the text together. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. Now, remember uh, earlier in our introductory messages to this series, we said that a lot of what Paul is writing here is really a response to the Corinthians. Uh, so there's some correspondence going on here, and that's why he says this. Concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then in quotes it says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And he adds some clarity. And he comes back at that kind of philosophy. He says in verse number two, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
Sometimes scripture uh, is a lot like the smallest kid on the basketball team. When I was a high school basketball coach, I seemed to always have one or two um, as a part of our team. They were, uh, many would say, undersized, uh, did not have uh, the athletic ability that maybe some other players had. Uh, And so I always found that uh, most people underestimated those kind of players, and those players typically loved to defy expectations. Uh, They like to prove people wrong. Uh, Well, our text today is kind of one of those places uh, that I think the Bible defies expectations. The Apostle Paul is going to speak to us about physical intimacy, and so we sort of get ourselves set for a lecture that would maybe be entitled, 10 Reasons Why Sex is Bad and We Shouldn't Talk About It, by Paul the Prude. But, But that's not what we find here. That's not what we find. In fact, a lot of people who are unfamiliar with Scripture would say that that's pretty much the position of the Bible. It's really just a long list of things you can't do. But that's not the case. That is certainly not the case, and especially in this area. So here is a positive, deeply affirming vision of sexual intimacy within the bonds of Christian marriage. He's going to give us three ways to think about intimacy, human sexuality, that I think we badly need to get a grip on. First of all, he's going to talk to us about sex or intimacy as defense. As defense. Now remember, the Corinthian believers were living in the middle of a profoundly hedonistic society, not unlike our own in many respects. Okay, the, 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 the motto of the day is, if it feels good, do it. Everybody just kind of doing what's right in their own eyes. Okay, that's, that's a lot like the world in which we're living, not a whole lot unlike uh, the Corinthian culture. And some of them found it very hard to resist the gravitational pull uh, of their permissive, anything-goes, uh, permissive culture. But there were others, as we noted before a few minutes ago, who overreacted, and the pendulum had swung for them to the opposite extreme, and so they were saying it is good for a man not to have a sexual relations with a woman, period. No intimacy. We're Christians. That's the path to godliness. We deprive ourselves. This was their point of view. And just to be clear, if you look down at verses 6 and 7, Paul is going to argue that celibate singleness is a particular gift from God that he gives to some people. Some people, not all people. In verse number 2 and again in verse number 5, so bracketing our text here today, you might say Paul is very clear that attempting celibacy without the gift and the call of God to a single life is actually to open yourself up to temptation and to sin. Those two verses say this. Verse 2 says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, because of that, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And then verse number 5, married couples, he's saying, are not to neglect sexual intimacy except for a season, then only by mutual agreement, and then they're to come back together again. Notice, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So neglecting intimacy within marriage is actually to expose oneself to all sorts of temptation. And Paul is saying a major defense given by God against sin in this area is to to practice intimacy as God ordained that it ought to be. It's his design. He's the designer of it. It's his plan. Now I want you to notice the strong affirmation here in the place of marriage. 
So in the face of the Corinthians uh, culture uh, that was characterized by adultery and fornication and sexual promiscuity, much like the world in which we live, verse 2 comes in and says, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The lifelong union of one man, one woman in marriage, Paul says, is the only appropriate venue and context for intimacy. And within that context, God has ordained that intimacy should strengthen and protect each partner from the temptations of the enemy who twists and distorts sex into something selfish and perverse and shameful. Now let's face it, as we said, this is a a spiritual battleground of our age unlike anything else. And wouldn't you agree with that this morning? It's one of Satan's favorite avenues of attack. We're confronted with it almost every day. You can hardly walk through a mall back when we did those things without being confronted by some kind of image. And uh, the marketing world uses uh, sex and all those kind of things to sell virtually every product you can imagine. Paul is clearly saying that a healthy intimacy within marriage is a vital defense ordained by God against Satan's attack. So that's the first thing we need to see here. Within a loving Christian marriage, it's part of God's armor in the spiritual war against the enemy of our souls, a battle in which we are engaged every day. Number two, I want us to see this morning from Paul's teaching here, intimacy as debt. Intimacy as debt. If you look at verses three and four once again, he says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's crucially important that we tackle these verses to notice both sides of Paul's teaching here. If we fail to do that, then we run the risk of distorting this message dangerously. When we understand what Paul is saying, we will see it's actually quite revolutionary, particularly in that culture, particularly in the context within which he was writing. So notice first in verse number three, Paul addresses husbands about the conjugal rights of the wife. Now what you've got to understand is that that flies directly in the face, not only of Jewish tradition, but the Greco-Roman culture in those days that privileged the husband's rights above the wife's every single time. It would not have been uncommon in that day for husbands to find gratification outside of their marriage and to only utilize physical intimacy within their marriage for the purpose of procreating. I hope you find that appalling. I hope you find that disgusting. And that is, that is what Paul is addressing here. And so when he says this, I mean, it, what he says here, it, 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 by affirming the woman's rights, and he commands husbands to respect those rights, it, it is absolutely revolutionary. I mean, what a statement. And he says the same applies to the wife regarding her husband. Each is to understand the other has rights, as it were, in this whole area. But here's the thing you've got to understand. It's really important to understand this. He places the obligation upon us to think of the rights of the other rather than to stand upon our own perceived rights and make demands of the other. I hope you understand the significance of that statement. Paul is actually helping us understand why intimacy might be one of the major points of friction in many marriages. 
When one partner demands his or her rights at the expense of their spouses, then pain and grief and tension and distance intrudes upon the relationship. And I can tell you one horrific story after another of people who've sat in my office over the last 30-some years of pastoral ministry who are struggling in this area because they don't have an understanding of this very thing. They don't get it. And so in a largely patriarchal society where women were considered virtual second-class citizens, this is an amazing statement, to say the least. Neither partner has absolute authority over themselves. Each has a claim upon the other so that love in the bonds of marriage brings each partner to a place of servant-heartedness, seeking what is best for their spouse. And Paul even says at the beginning of verse number 5, do not deprive one another. The word he uses there, it's interesting. You could translate it this way, do not defraud one another. He's conceiving of marriage as a debt, as something, uh, that is, uh, as something that is owed to one another, an intimacy in marriage rather than a debt that is owed, a sacred obligation designed by God for the good of both partners in a marriage relationship. So practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, the way that Paul speaks about it, there's something profoundly Christ-like here in this pattern of mutual service and self-giving that Paul describes Christ, you remember, gave himself for his bride, giving himself up for her. That's how he loves his bride, the church. He doesn't stand on his rights, but voluntarily surrenders them for the good of his bride. And Satan, you will remember, tempted him precisely on this point. He took him, according to Matthew chapter 4, verse number 6, to the highest point of the temple And he told him, throw yourself down. After all, the scripture says, God will command his angels concerning you. And in their hands, they will bear you up that your foot will not strike a stone. So go on, Jesus. Stand on your rights. Demonstrate to the world who you really are. But Jesus did not stand on his rights. Instead, he relinquished them, submitting to God, rebuking the devil. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that was his pattern throughout his earthly ministry. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He would surrender his divine prerogatives, as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, taking the form of a servant for the sake of the church, emptying himself. So there's a gospel pattern that Paul is saying then in marriage. It's a picture of the gospel itself, even within intimacy in marriage, of self-giving for the good of the other, of surrendering for the good of the other, not demanding, not standing on what people perceive to be our rights. It's part of God's design that dramatizes and pictures the gospel itself when it's rightly ordered in God's economy. Then I want you to notice thirdly this morning, Intimacy as devotion. If you look at verse 5 again, it says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And maybe some of you here today thinking, I didn't know this stuff was in the Bible. (laughs) It's here. It's God's design. Marriage. Intimacy, all those things, God's design. And so in our sexually broken world, it's not lost on me this morning that many are carrying deep scars. That may be you this morning. 
Some of us enter marriage with all kinds of emotional baggage that we're carrying, all kinds of vulnerabilities, all sorts of wounds, in some cases fear. Sometimes our marriages become disordered by our own sinfulness and our failure to live according to God's pattern. And given the complexities of all of that, there are various valid circumstances in which intimacy in a marriage may not be appropriate for a season. Anyone who takes Paul's teaching here in these five verses to somehow, uh, as a warrant, to demand what should be given as an act of loving service distorts the scriptures in a very dangerous way. There is absolutely no place for the kind of abusive demands that sometimes find their way even into Christian marriages. But then neither is there any place for manipulation withholding intimacy for selfish or spiteful ends, it also finds its place in Christian marriages. This is an area that's not to be used as some kind of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, a beating stick or a, a bullying kind of technique. Now, there's this one exception. Paul makes it clear. He says, do not deprive one another. That's the normal pattern of a healthy, loving marriage. But Paul does make this one exception here. You see it in the text. It's fascinating. It's actually very challenging. He says that a couple may break off their intimacy for a season only by mutual agreement in order to focus in a sustained way on prayer. The word translated in our version here, for a limited time, it has the idea of a season of some special significance with limits to it. There's some unusual circumstance of of special seriousness that is then calling the husband and the wife to a sustained season of focused prayerfulness. I think what Paul has in mind here is somewhat uh, uh, like uh, a fast from food. It's a subject that's often ignored, uh, misunderstood many times, the idea of fasting. When we fast, we are saying to God, Uh, Just as food is necessary for my bodily sustenance, you are even more necessary to the welfare of my soul. I need you more than daily bread. So I think Paul is suggesting that intimacy within marriage, so necessary, so normative, can be set aside for a time so that the couple may pray together as a way to say, even more than we need each other physically, we need you, O Lord. Whatever you make of that, It's clear. This much at least is very clear. The Apostle Paul expects Christian couples to be praying together. He expects them to understand that there is a higher claim upon their marriage that may even at times intrude upon their regular routine and cause them to reorder their priorities uh, even over their own physical needs. It begs this question of every one of us who are married, particularly Is my marriage a distinctively Christian marriage? The question is not, we married people who do church. Is your marriage a distinctively Christian marriage? With Christ as your guide, with his word as your foundation, led by the Holy Spirit, Is that what characterizes your marriage? Does Jesus Christ reign as Lord between you and over you and in your home? I recognize that some of you are in situations that do not look like that. 
And Paul actually addresses some of those things as we move further into chapter 7 here. Some very clear teaching on that subject. I've had multiple, multiple couples come to me through the years saying, we're just not on the same page spiritually. I understand that. I understand that. I would pray for that for you. I, 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 would, I would pray with you about that. But what I want you to understand here is this is something that is pleasing to God. There are situations, Paul is saying, when intimacy should be set aside. But notice, even then, the physical separation is never intended to be permanent. Paul says Satan is looking for any and every opportunity to undermine and disrupt and shatter Christian marriages. Don't pretend to be so spiritual that you can neglect intimacy with your spouse. Or don't use your piety as a way to cover uh, the deeper problems in your marriage that lead you to intimacy with your spouse altogether. Paul is teaching us here that intimacy in marriage is normally a part of Christian devotion and is itself pleasing to God, glorifying to him, beautiful in his sight. Now maybe that's a, a tough mental jump for some of you because of how you grew up. Okay, you find it really difficult to think of intimacy, with, even within your marriage, as something that is pleasing to God. Something that God ordained. Okay, I recognize that. That's why he says here, so come together again, verse number five, that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I want to close with this. And then, in some respects, I'm ready to say this morning, thankfully, we kind of move on from this subject, okay? Uh, Again, if you feel a bit weary this morning that uh, we've been here uh, for, it seems like, like three out of the last four weeks, seems like 12 weeks for me, okay? Um, I, I understand, uh, but I, again, we're, we're challenged to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. And God has a lot to say on this subject, but I'm persuaded that one of the best witnesses that we can offer in a confused, soul-sick society that seems to be plunging headlong into ever-increasing sexual chaos and confusion, one of the best ways we can bear witness in that society is to display humble, servant-hearted, gospel-shaped, tender, intimate, lifelong, enduring Christian marriages where there are no controlling, abusive demands, where there's no belittling manipulation but where instead there is joyful intimacy and wholeness, which in Paul's mind is part of our holiness, pleasing in the sight of God and honoring to him. While the world may think that Christians are sexually repressed prudes, obsessed with with what we're not allowed to have, oh, how we need to recover a biblical vision that delights in God's wonderful design for the joyful union of one man and one woman in marriage for life. When we begin not only to believe that, but to live it out by the grace of God, what a testimony we bear. How countercultural we will be. And what a beautiful thing it is to see how the gospel reorders our lives and and that the world may know it can reorder them as well. Remember here, Paul is writing to Christians. Okay, so don't leave here today thinking, man, have I got some ammo to go blast my friends and neighbors who are living a completely different way. That's not what this is for. That's not what this is intended for. 
He's writing to Corinthian believers who are struggling in these areas. So it's intended as a defense against temptation that is all too common. Between two believers and the bonds of Christian marriage, Paul says it's a sacred debt, an obligation that we owe our spouses, characterized and shaped and directed by the pattern of the gospel, where neither stands on their own rights making demands, but seeks instead to serve and care for the other. And intimacy within the bonds of Christian marriage is a form of Christian devotion, glorifying to God, And well-pleasing to him. So may the Lord help us. Give us grace. At a time when this is a battlefield. Where Satan is opposing the people of God. That's nothing new. We would all like to point at the sexual revolution of the last several decades. This is nothing new. All these things were distorted in Genesis. From Genesis chapter 3 on. May God give us grace to shine and bear witness to the world of what the gospel can do, even in these areas. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment this morning? Oh Lord Jesus, we recognize the practicality of your word today. how clearly it speaks to subjects that are right where we live, as we say. I recognize this morning, O Lord, that this subject lands hard on some people because of past hurt, perhaps because of abuse in this area. And so, God, for them, I pray. I pray for hope and for healing. for restoration. I know it's very likely that there are people in the room here today, people watching online who may be in the midst of very, very broken relationships. Much of that brokenness is seen in this area of intimacy. So God, we thank you that you have given us clear direction, that you've given us in this an amazing picture of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in holiness, to walk in purity, enjoying what you have designed, what you have created. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today who are struggling with temptation in this area in whatever form that may be, I pray that you would help them to recognize how much we truly need you and to choose to acknowledge every day in every way that Jesus is always better. God, we commit these things to you, and it's our prayer that in our relationships, we would be so countercultural. God, we love you, 
We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.